Well, it's good to be with you this morning. My name is Daniel. For those of you who are new or visiting, this, this feels exciting to me. I wasn't able to be a part of our gathering last week, and so this is my first time being all together. It's great seeing your faces, great uh, seeing people. We've only had the chance to see online. So anyways, it's, it's so good to be here. Glad to open up God's word for us this morning. If you have a Bible, I do invite you to turn to Psalm 32. I think you'll find it helpful to follow along as we work our way through it. Over the course of our summer months, we're going to be spending our time in the book of Psalms. As a church, we're going through a Bible reading plan and we're picking out Psalms from the week of that Bible reading plan. And so I encourage you, if, you, if you're not regularly reading your Bible, I encourage you to jump online to our website, pick up that Bible reading plan, I think you'll, you'll see what we believe here to be true, that God really does transform people by his word, and that there's something powerful about reading the Bible together in a community. It's, there's something powerful about the Holy Spirit working in a group of people and leading them. So anyways, pick up that Bible reading plan. Let me just pray for us, and then we'll jump right in. Father, we thank you that you are the God who speaks to us. Father, you have not left us on our own. Father, you guide and you lead. Lord, and you came. Lord, we thank you for the good news of Jesus. Thank you for the hope of forgiveness. Father, we pray now that you would give us attentive minds and humble hearts, Lord. Help us to receive what you have to say. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One, two, nine, six. This is my daughter counting. Uh, all of a sudden she gets to 11 and she starts to nail it. 11, 12, 13. You can, you can hear the, the feet running around the house. 14, 15, 16. Room's getting quieter. The footsteps are starting to run away. 17, 18, all of a sudden you see kids underneath couches, behind beds, in closets. But you know, there's always that one kid. That one kid who's still just like feet pattering around trying to, to find a, a place to hide. You, you, can, you can sense it in the child. There's that Fear that's rising, that, that anxiety starts to, starts to arise, that the, the breathing starts to, to quicken. They're afraid. They're afraid of being found out. So 19, 20, all of a sudden, they're just desperate. And so they just jump behind a, a, a curtain. Now, they know the curtain only comes up to their knees. They know that curtain is borderline transparent, but better there than out in the open. Ready or not, here I come. I think life is a little bit like hide and seek. I think we inherently realize that we are flawed and sinful beings. We're actually probably far worse than we'd ever like to admit. 
One pastor once said that if our whole life was written in an autobiography, we would not want to read it for ourselves. Never mind someone else getting a chance to read it. We don't want people to know who we really are. And thus begins then the game of hide and seek. We hide behind our success and our good deeds as though those good things about us would distract people from our bad deeds. We give excuses. We, we blame society or the people around us for the ways we wrongly behave. Or we just say, if we could just have more time, just a little bit more time and I would be able to fix it on my own. Thing is, no matter how hard we try, it feels like our sin is just a little bit too big and our toes are still sticking out underneath the curtain. Hide and seek is actually the game that people throughout the Bible want to play. If you remember Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve sin in the garden, and what's the first thing they want to do is hide. They, they decide to run away and hide and cover themselves with fig leaves and loincloths in order to, to hide from the God who created them. Hide and seek is also the game David wanted to play. You might remember the story. David is considered to be a God after, a man after God's own heart. He had been the greatest king in Israel's history. And yet, one morning, he's up on his rooftop balcony, and he looks out, and he sees this open window, and there's Bathsheba. Bathsheba's bathing, and he wants her. He's tempted by her. He's, he's drawn to her. And so he says, go and bring her to me. I, I want her. And so he brings Bathsheba, who's this married woman, into his palace and he sleeps with her. Now he feels this guilt and this condemnation and so he needs to hide it. So he sends Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to the front of the war where he's killed. He murders him in order to cover up his own sin. But then one day, when David thinks he's totally in the clear, no one else knows about this sin, there's a godsend. Nathan, literally, he's a godsend. Nathan is the only one who, by God's kind of revelation, has an awareness of David's sin. And he approaches David, and so through Nathan, David becomes aware of his sin and the reality that he's been trying to hide before God. And so he, he finally utters this conviction. He feels like he's finally able to come clean. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 12, he says this, I have sinned against the Lord. That's his confession. Now, later, David will write Psalm 51. I believe Psalm 51 is David expanding on what he said in 2 Samuel. Now we pull the lens back a little further and we get Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is David kind of recapping these events of what life looked like before, during, and after his confession. And so this morning, what I want to do is give us nine points. I'm actually serious. 
why nine and not 10? So then you can't go, I heard Daniel had like 10 points. I can be like, that's crazy. It's nine. Anyways, nine points. David actually begins this way. He says, a masculine of David. That word masculine likely means instruction or insight. And so here's nine of David's insights. Nine reasons why David thinks we should confess our sins. So first reason, we confess our sin to experience true happiness. To experience true happiness. Look at verses one and two again. It says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Then verse 5 says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David confesses that leads to forgiveness, which leads to what David says is blessing. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Now, the word David chooses to use here for blessed is an interesting word. Yes, it means favored by God. Yes, it means flourishing. But it actually also carries with it an emotional component. It means happy. Happy is the one whose sins are forgiven. Forgiveness is this holistic experience that we get to be a part of. Here's what I find more fascinating, though, is that that same word blessed or happy is used in the very first book or first chapter of the Psalms. So Psalms 1, 1 to 2 say this. Listen, blessed, it's how the book begins. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This is what I find so profound. The one who obeys God, Psalm 1 verse 1 says, is the one who is blessed, and yet also the one who disobeys God can be blessed. Blessed is the one who knows they are a sinner, but knows, who know, knows who, what they need to do about it. See, billions of people right now are searching for happiness. They search for it in wealth, in comfort, in status. But David says true blessing, true happiness is experienced by the one who knows their sins are forgiven. Who knows that even though they aren't the way they are supposed to be, even though they don't live up to their own standards or God's standards, that they are right in his eyes. Therefore, confess. Run to him. Run away from sin. Find true happiness in confession. Secondly, we confess our sin because all sin needs to be forgiven. Notice that David uses three words here to describe sin. He says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. There's a slight nuance to each of those words. 
The word transgression means literally to, to cross a boundary. It's to know what's wrong, but to do it anyways. It's to know that it's wrong to lust, but to click the mouse. If transgression were a song, it would be, if loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right. Sin, then, is missing the mark. Sin is falling short or, or not being the, the person we're, we're supposed to be. If sin, or trans, uh, if sin was a song, it would be, oops, I did it again. It's the oops sin. It's the I'm exhausted, and so just in this moment of kind of fleeting just fatigue, I tear someone down instead of lift them up. And then there's iniquity. Iniquity is twisting or perverting something. It's doing something good, but for the wrong reasons. It's serving on a ministry team, not to love others, not for the glory of the Lord, but for our own fame, for our own recognition. If iniquity were a song, it would be, I never knew being so good could be so bad. That's not a song, I just made that one up. I couldn't, I honestly couldn't think of a, a song for that one. <laughs> so David uses these three words, transgression, sin, and iniquity. Now David's point is not to have us reflect on our lives and think through which category our shortcomings fall under. His point is to say, look, all sin is wrong. All sin needs to be forgiven. The greatest of sins to the smallest of sins. It all needs to be covered by God's forgiveness. But God can also cover all of those sins. See, uh, we live in this war. And the war is against confession. The, the, the war, the opponent, is deceit. Verse 2 says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. See, the father of lies wants to trick us. He wants us to believe that there are certain sins that are not a big deal. There are certain sins that we can just kind of move on with. He, he wants us to believe that maybe there's a certain time to confess sin. That this, this is something we, we'll deal with in the future. Or sometimes he just wants us to believe that our sin is too big and that God can't forgive this one. Or that you've been wrestling with this sin for so long that it's just time to give up on it. That God's obviously done shaping you and changing you. We ignore sin. We surrender sin. We trivialize sin. I'm driving on the freeway this week, and I'm in the HOV lane, not because it's faster, but because I'm pro-environment. That's not also true. But I'm driving down the road. I'm just going the speed limit, and all of a sudden, I see this sports car in my rearview mirror. And this thing is howling. Like, it's revving like, like crazy. It's, it's like weaving through traffic. I'm, my guess, it's going like 130, 140. It's weaving, it's weaving, it's weaving. I'm in the HOV lane. It kind of all of a sudden pulls up in front of me, and then there's kind of this row of cars. 
And so it can't pass. I mean, it, this thing's tailgating these other cars. I mean, we're talking like F1, like DRS system. Like this thing is like ready. It wants to go, but there's no room for it. And I'm just sitting in this HOV lane and there's no one there. I mean, any moment, it could have just come on in and just gone around the cars. But it's interesting. For that person to go 140 down the freeway was not a big deal. But to cross into the HOV lane, that was off limits. <laughs> I think that's the lies that we, we believe about sin. Some sin is okay, some sin's too big. And so David says, confess. Confess because all sin, great and small, needs to be forgiven and can be forgiven. Thirdly, we confess our sin because silence leads to suffering. David's life was far from comfortable after his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. Look, even though there were not any direct consequences, like no one knew about this. I mean, it might feel as though David got out scot-free. He, he feels this. He, he's burdened by it. It's eating him up. Look at verse 3. He says, When I kept silence, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. You can imagine that he's feeling sick and achy. He's having cold sweats. He can't sleep at night. He can't focus at work. He goes on, verse 4. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. If only we knew what it was like to live in a heat wave. To feel as though you just want some relief. You're just hoping you can open up the window and feel a breeze, but there's just nothing, David says. One marine biologist I was reading this past week estimated that there were a billion sea creatures killed off of the coast of BC because of this heat wave. They just baked. They just baked in the heat. That's what David feels like. He's just baking. He just can't escape it. Now, we're not actually sure what David means here when he talks about this hand of the Lord that was heavy upon him. There's two possibilities. One possibility is that this is God directing, afflicting David with something, with, with maybe like a real illness. The Bible speaks about that. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30, Paul says, look, there are some of you who are sick because you're taking communion and you're not living a life of repentance. So maybe it's the Lord directing, afflicting David, but maybe it's just also the weight that David's carrying. Just this feeling of anxiety and guilt. I was talking to a doctor this week, and he said that probably 50% of the cases he sees, 50% of the patients that come to him are related to mental illness. Now, they're not coming in and saying like, hey doc, I, I have a mental illness. They're coming in and saying, hey, hey I have, I'm having a hard time breathing. Hey, I, I'm having this, this issue. I feel like there's this, this weight on my chest. I, I feel stressed. 
Now, previously, the College of Physicians actually reprimanded doctors who would pray for their patients. But, but recently, there's been just more and more weight and more and more studies that have said that actually to offer spiritual care is actually a legitimate means of medical help. They've actually said it, it can be a good thing for you to pray with your patients, for you to give them spiritual literature, for them to meditate, other religions would say. These are viable means of getting physical help. Our, our physical life is connected to our spiritual reality. And so David's saying, I feel this pain. I feel this hurt. Now that suffering that we experience is, hear this, it's a grace of God. That suffering we experience can be a grace of God because it teaches us that sin that's not dealt with ultimately will kill us. So stop trying to hide your sin. It's just making you miserable. Fourthly, we confess our sin to restore our relationship with God. What does it actually mean to confess our sin? Look, look at verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Confession, not covering, acknowledging. What does that look like? Well, I think we're helped here by the word the New Testament uses for confess. The Greek word is homologeo. It comes from two words, homo, which means same, and logos, which means word. To confess is to say the same thing about something as God says about it. So confession is not just going, uh, my bad, I, I messed up, I shouldn't have done that. Confession is not this formula. It's, it's actually feeling the same way about sin that God feels about sin. It's to recognize that it's wrong and that it grieves our God. It's to recognize that we need God and we want him to do something about it. One Puritan said, A hypocrite may leave his sins, yet love them. A sanctified man leaves his sins and hates them. That's what confession is. Confession is coming to God and saying, I hate this sin. I don't want anything to do with this anymore. I think one of the reasons we don't confess our sin is because we don't really understand what confession accomplishes. Right? So I've heard this objection. I don't need to confess my sin because Jesus already paid for my sin. Right? J Jesus paid for my sin. He said, it is finished. Why do I need to confess my sin to God then? See, I would say two things. One is that the person who lives in relationship with God lives a life of constant repentance. You're constantly trusting in the Lord for his forgiveness. But also, sin grieves our God. Sin acts as a disruptor in our relationship with him. It hinders our intimacy with him. 
And so confession then is less of clearing guilt before a judge and more of fessing up to mom and dad. See, a child owns up to their mistakes not to receive their parents' love, but to rest in it and to know it more fully. I think you see that in the picture of a child running with open arms to their mom or dad. They feel guilty. They feel ashamed. And yet, who do they run to? They run to their mom and dad. They're not running away from them. They recognize that in that moment, all they really desire is to know that their mom and dad still loves them, that they are still welcome and home. We don't, we don't confess our sins to earn God's love, but to rest in and to experience the love he has already showed us. Now, practically, that means two things. It means we confess our sins to God. So there's this private dimension of confession, and, and confession always begins that way. But sometimes we also go public with our sins. Sometimes we confess our sins to others. Because if we really are ultimately searching after a right relationship with God, then we want the help of others. Hey, I'm struggling in this. Hold me accountable. Pray for me. Check in with me. Walk with me through this. I want to love our God better. So there's the private dimension of confession. And then there's also the public dimension of confession. Confession is not a formula it's an attempt to restore a relationship with God. It's not sacrifice that God desires, we read earlier. It's a broken and contrite heart. Number five, we confess our sin while we still can. Verse six says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. It's possible to feel the conviction and weight of sin and not do anything about it. Thing is, David warns us that there might come a time when you can't do anything about it. The indigenous Americans have this picture of their conscience as a, a triangle in their gut. Whenever they sin or, or do something wrong or something that hurts their community, this, this triangle spins in their stomach. And it pokes them, it, it jabs them, it, it makes them feel as though they need to change, as though they need to own up. Now something happens, they said, if you let that triangle go unchecked. That triangle can spin and spin and spin until eventually it turns into a smooth circle. And then you don't feel any conviction. And then you don't know what to do with your wrongs. So confess David says, confess while you still can. Don't wait until tonight. Right now, walk in newness of life. Sixthly, we confess our sin to find protection in God. Verse 6 says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Our God is a refuge. He's a help in times of need. 
But something happens when we decide to live in unconfessed sin. It's as though we are walking away from God and saying, God, I got this. I, I, I don't need you. And so God says, I'm not going to be there for you then when you're going through hard times. Come to me. Let me be the ark in the flood. Let me be the cave in the storm. Notice that David says he doesn't take you out of suffering. He, he says, you are a hiding place for me in the storm. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. Stop trying to weather the storm on your own. Whatever it is you're going through right now, come clean, come to the Lord. Let him be your protection. Let him be your hiding place. Number seven, we confess our sin to receive guidance from God. Verse eight and nine say this, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. See, sin is saying, I believe I know better. Sin is saying, actually, over here, this is where true flourishing is found. We're distancing ourselves from his protection and direction. We're not, we're not coming to God and saying, hey, hey, lead me. And so what God does then in those moments, is he says, well, I still love you. I still want to care for you. And so what he does is he puts a bridle in our mouth, David says. Because the mule is S-T-U-P-I-D. He didn't understand what I just said. Because he's so S-T-U-P-I-D. He, he doesn't understand. That he just needs to go. Just, just walk. Just do your job. And I won't be having to yank on your mouth this whole time. David says, let the Lord just lead you. Come to him. As a child would come to their father, grab his hand, let him show you the way you need to go. David says he, he will counsel you with his eye upon you. He, he, think of that picture. His eye is on you. There's a, there's a billion different things going on in the world, but our God is not like a distracted driver. He does not lose his focus on your life. He's constantly watching over you, guiding you, leading you. Let him lead you. Number eight, we confess our sin to be reminded of the gospel. Earlier, I said that confession is both private and public, right? We, we're reading David's psalm of confession 3,000 years later. For 3,000 years, there's been people who have been very aware of David's shortcomings. We do that, I said, for accountability. But I think we also do that because we need to be reminded of forgiveness. See, I think we, we don't confess our sins because I think we don't even know ourselves how to respond when other people confess their sins to us. Right? So, so maybe, maybe you've, you've experienced this, or maybe you've been on, on the receiving end. Someone, someone comes clean to you, and there's just that awkward silence. They're just like, oh, 
Okay. Or, or, or there's the condemnation. How could you do that? that that's terrible. I can't, I can't imagine you would mess up that way. What were, what were you thinking? Then, then there's maybe the, the slightly better responses. It's, it's the, hey, I have this great book. You should read this book. I think it will help you. Or the, hey, let me, let me pray for you. Let, let's ask God to, to see if he can to help you through this. And look, I, I believe some of those responses are good, but I don't think that's the, our first response. I think our first response is what we try to model here on Sundays. We, we share a time of confession together. We corporately come clean. And then what do we do? We read from an assurance. We read that we are forgiven. That's our first response. Our first response when someone comes clean and says, hey, Daniel, I'm, I'm struggling in this area. I feel like I keep messing up. I feel wrong about this. I want to I be with Jesus. I want to walk in intimate life with him. Our first response is, Jesus died for that. That sin is on the tree. You, you don't carry that anymore. You, you are forgiven. You walk in newness of life. The spirit is alive and you sin don't have power over you anymore. You've been freed from the bonds of slavery. Th that's our first response. It's to proclaim the forgiveness of the Lord over people's sin. God is bigger than sin. And I think David hints at that here. Listen to verse 7 again. He said, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. And then he says this, you surround me with shouts of deliverance. When I come clean, Lord, it's as though there's these shouts over my life reminding me that I've been delivered from sin. See, we believe that it's the gospel it's the good news, the grace, the mercy of Jesus that ultimately changes people, not telling them they need to try harder. Listen to this modern rendition of Screwtape Letters. Screwtape is this senior demon, and he's writing a letter to his prodigy, this prodigy demon named Wormwood. And they've been trying to destroy this Christian. They've been trying to lead this Christian away. And so Screwtape says this. Your patient hates his sin more by the day. And when he does sin, the enemy, that's Jesus, the enemy has taught him to confess and repent immediately. Confession of sins praying for each other, or sharing stories of the enemy's work will only make him even closer to the enemy than before. That's one step forward, two steps back for us. One step forward, two steps back. Sin is one step back for us, but confession is two steps forward. Sin boldly, Luther would say, not in the sense that we should just go out and start sinning, but he says sin boldly in the sense that sin and know that God is bigger still than that sin. Just imagine for a moment what could happen if we began to really confess our sins to one another here. 
Imagine if instead of weaponizing a conviction of sin, instead of using that to destroy someone later down the line, instead of gossiping about it, there's just this, this spread and this just this overwhelming feeling of the fact that we are forgiven people. Imagine if all of a sudden we really began to believe that, that, that we are not perfect and that perfection is not something that we can attain in and of ourselves. Imagine if we believe that instead we rested in the freedom of God's grace and mercy. Imagine what our city would come to see if they would go in that place. That place is not this, this ritzy hotel for all these people who have arrived. For some reason, that place is a place of broken people. That place is a hospital, but it seems as though they have a healer. I want to know that Savior. We confess our sin because God is bigger than sin, because the cross is bigger than condemnation, and because we need to be always reminded of that. So lastly, we confess our sin because God doesn't turn us away. Verses 10 and 11 say this, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is David summarizing things up. And why does he say we can rejoice and celebrate? It's because God guarantees us our forgiveness. True confession is always followed by true and full restoration and reconciliation. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, this is the promise, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our, our word of confession hardly escapes out of our mouth before our wounds are healed. If David says, you trust him. If you trust him. Confession is not ultimately saying the right thing. It's not following a formula. It's trusting in the Lord. It's coming to him, believing that he can do something about our sin. In hide and seek, there's always that one child who's scrambling around and, and, and trying to find something. And it feels like they just, they, they don't, they can't think of another spot to go. And so, th so they see all of these, these people hiding around them and they go to them and say, hey, can I hide here? And we know the feeling. We know the response. The response is go find your own spot. I, I found this spot. This is my hiding place. I ran here first. You, you go think of some other place. You're not coming in here making a bunch of noise and ratting me out. No, no, no. You go, find, you go find some other place. The gospel is, the good news of confession is, is that in that moment, Jesus goes, Psst, come hide over here. Come hide behind me. Hide in my life. And then when, when that curtain is pulled open and someone says, aha, I found you, they go, 
hold on, I thought there were two people here, but all I see is Jesus' perfect life. Yeah, I see your sin, but for some reason, it's nailed to the tree. I expected guilt and condemnation and burden, except all I see is joy in the hope of resurrected life. Let me surround you with my love, Jesus said. Let me cover your sin. Let me forgive you. Let me make you happy. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fact that we can come clean. Lord, I pray right now the truth of the gospel would overwhelm the lies of our hearts, would overwhelm the belief that says we either need to carry this on our own or that it's not a big deal or that you can't do anything about it. Father, help us to believe that there is true joy in walking clean with you. Father, I pray if there are people here right now who are feeling that sin in their life, Lord, they're carrying it right now. The thoughts of of maybe what would happen if, if other people knew. Lord, I pray, would you grant them freedom? Lord, would you show them that nothing is as serious as ultimately paying for sin on our own? So Father, help us. Help us to be a people who confess our sins to you and to each other. Father, we pray this in the precious, powerful name of Jesus. Amen.